This is the West Coast Project podcast for Better Call Saul. My name is Mike. And I'm Jamie. Hi, Jamie. Hey, Mike. So, Jamie, I have some news about the podcast. I have parted ways with Kelly, and we've wished each other the best, and we're going to go our separate directions. And um, I'm inviting you to do the podcast with me. Well, that's exciting news. I know that's not official that I kind of invited you before, but or before we got live here. But um, yeah, we do a good job on the Americans, and I really like your energy and your take on stuff. So yeah, Jamie and I, um, Jamie Kelly and I, just had different directions we were going with what we wanted to do with the podcast. And I wish her well, and she has some cool websites. So yeah, so that's that. Well, that's that's great. That's great. I'm I'm glad that um that I you know it's kind of it's lucky for me because I you know I don't know how much you want to tell to the audience about this, but I actually the way that you and I met was because I was interested in doing the breaking uh, the the Better Call Saul prequel podcast, which was the Breaking Bad lead-in podcast for Better Call Saul, and um, I was a little bit heartbroken when I didn't get the position. So I'm really really happy to be here. Yeah, didn't you offer to? recite leaves of grass or something though i offered to recite a whole bunch of stuff i wanted to stand on my head and do you favors and be your personal assistant and do all kinds of stuff but you're just like forget it i want kelly (laughs) okay well we're here to do 107 bingo better call saul and um there's some interesting facts about this like the the one detective the young dude is uh his name in the show is abasi and his real name is omid abtahi so I don't know if they got alliterative with his with his last names and used Abasi to kind of sound like his real name, but um, I thought that was kind of kind of cool. It is kind of interesting. Well, we've seen him before, of course. We saw him lose his notebook, and he's kind of a he's kind of a square peg in these round holes of the Philadelphia Police Department. He's he's uh, a little different than the old school guys, Mike and and that other guy, um, you know, the other cop, the other cop that we see, right. Um, which his name is escaping me now. Do you remember his name? I, you know what? I can't think of his name. And I Sanders, look- Sanders, and a Sanders and a bossy. Okay, all right, okay. And then his real life name, like that actor, the guy who played Sanders, Detective Sanders. His real life uh, name is like Joseph Henley, I think it is. And um, I yeah, looked- Barry Barry Shabaka Henley. Right, right. That's right. That's right. Okay, so. So here's the thing with that dude. Like I rem- I was listening to the Better Call Saul your Better Call Saul podcast this one. And um I heard you guys talking about um that maybe you'd seen him before, like you thought maybe you'd seen him on Breaking Bad. And so I looked him up to see because he looked familiar to me too. And he doesn't have any credits that I could find that attached him to Breaking Bad. So now I'm wondering if he was on there uncredited or if he's just got one of those fake that seem like you see it everywhere. I don't know what the deal is. Yeah, he looks like Mike. He's look, he's another Mike in the world, right? The right. old, the old crusty old cop. Exactly. <laughs> but um, the guy Abasio Mid Abtahi did work on Argo and Brothers, the movies Argo and Brothers and Ocean of Pearl. So he's been around a little bit. Okay. He kind of reminds me of uh, Nacho. Oh. <clears throat> oh, Nacho. Yeah. He reminds me of Nacho. He looks like Nacho. Oh, kind of a little bit. 
kind of like, yeah, you're right. You're right. But, you know, we shouldn't be surprised with these guys having these great acting credentials because that dude, um, Henley, he's got a huge resume. I mean, like, he goes back a long time. And he's another one of those actors that's been in a lot of movies and done some uh, character acting, like some, you know, character spots on TV series. But um, we shouldn't be surprised because that is the way the casting agents work with uh, Vince Gilligan and his crew. They cast people for small parts as though they're casting for major parts. They always pick the cream of the crop actors because they never know if they're going to stick around or what's going to happen with them. Yeah, that's pretty smart. And of course, Gilligan taps into all this great culture, all these old, great old, you know, the Robert Forsters and the Jonathan Bankses of the world. Pretty cool. Yep, he really does. He does a great job with that. Okay, and one other cool thing was Larissa Kondracki, who is the director of this, um, is going to direct an episode of The Americans later in the season three. Oh, wow, that should be so cool. The one called Stingers. I think it's episode 10 of The Americans. Okay. All right, well, we'll have to look out for it and remember to, to pay attention to you and see if we see any similarities. And, Jamie, you and I do The Americans when we cover that on Friday. So listen in for that if you like this and you like Jamie and me talking. You might like to listen to us on The Americans. That's right. And we're fixing we, – okay, we've got to put this on the table, Jamie. We've got glitches in the Skype connection we have, and we're really working on it. And we're in, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to change one of our connections to fix it. So you might have to struggle through a couple podcasts before we get it all tuned up, but um, we That's will right. get it fixed. So stick with us. All right, I will. I'll try. <laughs> All right, so this episode begins with um, the the wanted board in the police department. Did you notice anyone on that board? Did you have any takes on that board, Jamie? No. Look, I, I couldn't figure out if these were faces that we might see in the future. I know it's faces I haven't seen on the show in the past. I don't remember any of them from Breaking Bad. Um, so I was wondering if it was just they were being artful to run into these characters at some point, you know, or, or what it was. I don't know. Well, they were being pretty artful when they when they um, panned down to this glum-looking Jimmy. It looked like he was one of the people on the board. Right. But he was just another, just a glum-looking Jimmy sitting on the bench. Yeah. <clears throat> so he looks really bummed out, and Mike's, Mike just sitting there chilling. He looks really resigned to whatever whatever happens. I'm here to deal with it. Like he's not he's not emotional at all. Right. Yeah. It so looked like they'd been called into the principal's office, and they were just waiting to get <laughs> to get brought in. <laughs> so Jimmy's strategy is I do the talking. Pretty typical lawyer take on stuff, right? I do the talking, no matter what. That's right. And um, Abbasi comes in, the young, the young cop from Philly comes in. He's all pissed off and immediately handed over. So they must have set up this meeting with, hey, we found your notebook, because <laughs> um, that's the very first thing he wants. Now, right. they're scot-free on this, right? Even though they're blatantly guilty and all four of them know what happened, they're scot-free, right? They, there's no way they can get caught for this. It's just like, hey, we found it on the ground. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's their word against his word. So, but Abbasi plays a little dirty. He threatens Mike's daughter-in-law, which is not too cool. And then Mike fires Jimmy, fires him. Thanks, you're dismissed. We we got some talking to do. Good luck. Move move on your way. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You know, I didn't know quite how to take that. I didn't. I didn't 
at him as him firing him so much as saying, just get to going right now. I'm done with your services for the evening. So just, you know, step on out and, and I'll take care of business from here. But it really could have been either. And, um, I, you know, that, that's just, it's one of those moments, um, that taken as Jimmy's earnestness and him, you know, just really being, he really is an advocate for his clients. And, um, you know, you don't see it any more clearly than you do in this scene where he's just like, you're not going to talk to my client alone. And, you know, even against his own client's wishes, he still wants to protect them. Um, and then he gets sent on his way. <laughs> yeah. He wants to do his job well, which is really admirable. I think of Jimmy at this point. Right. But the reason Mike says this is he knows that he and Sanders are going to have this old-timers agreement, and they proceed to have some old-school, old-world talk. You know, the old cops of the world, have a, they have a basic union, I think, and they understand each other super well. And they're, they're, you know, their strategy is, like, this is not good for anybody on either side here if any of this gets out. I mean, cops killed another cop. And another cop killed those cops, right? So it can't do anybody any good to catch anybody here. Right, exactly, because it's all cops that are going to be going to jail. So I do listen to the Insider podcast, and even even the Gilligan team on that Insider podcast said that, that the, the goal is to sweep it under the rug and um, just let let it be and move move on. I gotcha. Okay. All right. Yeah, because that's what it seemed like. And, you know, I thought it was really um, kind of cool, the conversation that happened between the two of them, because it started out with Sanders kind of making excuses for the young gun. And, you know, Mike saying, well, I don't like him, you know, so even with all that, you know, sort of deception and sleight of hand and stealing that, you know, the book and everything, he likes the kid. He likes the, the young cop. Yeah, he probably likes his spunk, his his get get up and go whatever. yeah probably and and you know who knows he may remind mike of a young mike because matt was you know sort of really you know straight laced and very energetic and wanted to do the right thing and maybe mike was like that one at one time yeah because mike and sanders here are letting a crime set settle unresolved just let it be it's the best thing for everybody involved and Abbasi wants to straighten it out, find it out, figure it out, and prosecute whoever is guilty or whoever deserves, you know, repercussions from the law. And that's not really the best answer in this case. Right. And that's, and that's what Sanders says. He's, you know, he says basically like he's, you know, he's young and he's kind of feeling his oats and he kind of wants, you know, he needs to figure out how to get along, basically. Get along to go along or go along to get along. Yeah. yeah, so that was our first break and the first credits rolled here. And um, we come back from the commercial and Mike and Saul are still talking. And Saul picks it back up like, hey, you know, let me be your attorney. I'll do the best for you and get you out of this. And Mike really, I think, does fire him. He just drives away. Um, Mike <laughs> knows he doesn't need him to pursue this because it's settled as far as Sanders and him are concerned. I also noted that Mike has a much better car than Saul, even though Mike's car is a piece of junk. Saul's car is... Like rated in the in the scale of car crappiness, it's like pretty close to zero. Yeah, <laughs> like seriously, that one, car. One to ten, it's like a zero. <laughs> yeah, that it's it's a horrible, horrible car. It's like I don't think it even matches. Like I think one of the doors is the wrong color. Yeah, it's a red door and a yellow car. <laughs> he does get the Kettleman's in there later, though, so that was pretty pretty good. 
It's functional. I, <laughs> shouldn't make fun of a car that runs, I guess. That's right. That's exactly right. But I did. I, I did love that scene with the Kettleman's in the back seat. <laughs> yeah, that's coming up later. Um, so Jimmy goes over to Chuck's, and Chuck's outside sunning himself. Jamie, he's trying to get better. I, I admire Chuck for this. He's not a quitter. He's like really working painfully to make himself overcome this uh, fear and faux disease that he has. Yeah, must be a family trait. They try hard, those guys. Those, uh, those McGill brothers. Those McGill. So Chuck says, I need to be useful again. Do you think that spells disaster for him? Is that the curse he drops on himself for this series? I don't know. I mean, you know, I've heard you talk about that before in previous podcasts that maybe, he, you know, he's due for the boneyard. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think that the fact that Jimmy doesn't have a relationship with him um, that we know of, um, you know, in the future, it doesn't bode well for him. But I don't know if that means that's because he's in a mental institution or if it means that he has met his maker. Yeah, well, either way, I would call either one of those disaster. You, yeah. You're right. We don't ever see him in Breaking Bad that I can remember or even have a reference reference to him. Right. Yeah. Because Saul just kind of existed in his own little universe with no family and nobody, you know, really to speak of. We do still have a couple wives we have to catch up to, though, right? Ex-wives wives? of Jimmy? Oh, well, now that's that's information for me. I didn't know that he'd been married. I think he references one and maybe even two ex-wives in Breaking Bad. You might be right. I don't know. I, I, that sounds familiar, but I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember completely at all. So I don't know, which is odd for me because, you know, I know just about everything about that show. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jimmy drops. Well, before he drops off the case files, he does say I'm proud of you, which I thought might also be part of that spelling disaster. Like, I'm proud of you, big brother. I'm going he's going to be useful again. It's like, uh oh, don't look around the next corner of, of your episode. Yeah. Um, but Jimmy drops off those files to. That's got to be bait, right? Jamie's baiting him to get back to work. Absolutely, hundred percent. Because if you didn't like, here's what I think. You know, this guy's really smart. Like Jimmy's no slouch, and so he brings in the boxes. He incorrectly refers to whatever that um, the with a uh, file the what are they forms the like four eleven forms or whatever he says it wrongly instead of five eleven, and um, and he knows his brother's going to catch that and I think he said it on purpose to pique his brother's interest right yeah he, after he walks out you get that shot of him looking in the window to see what his brother's going to do. Right. Is the plan working? Right. So then we go, Jimmy goes from there to, with Kim to the new office. This was a pretty cool little scene. It was. Um, I, when, when I saw this scene, Jamie, I had, I, it kind of reminded me of my philosophy about life. Okay. So my philosophy is sometimes in life you need to cut back to make your life better. And sometimes you need to forge ahead to make your life better. And I think Jimmy here is forging ahead, right? He's taking this big, giant step of getting into this nice office. He probably can barely afford it, even with this stolen or bribe money or whatever the Kettleman's gave him. He's probably pushing his economic limit to do this, right? But still, he's forging ahead. But have you ever thought about that in your career like or your life? Like, should I cut back to to make my life better or should I forge ahead? 
Have you ever had to make that decision? I mean, I did, actually. Right around the time that you and I met, I had made the decision to forge ahead. Because as we know, and we didn't, we've talked about this um, on the Americans podcast, I'm a technical writer um, in my career. And um, I, I wanted to do some stuff to sort of advance my career and broaden it in some direction not been before. And I made the decision to go back to school. And so I'm at university right now taking five classes and working full time and podcasting and blogging and doing all this other stuff. And, um, and it was, it was a big decision, uh, but I'm glad I made it. And, and, you know, and that was a forge ahead idea instead of a cutback idea. Yeah. And it's pretty admirable when people do that, like, especially right after they had a setback, like Jimmy's had this setback, right. And he's forging ahead. He's still forging ahead. Right. Right. Which is courageous. And he's that guy, you know, he's got plenty of courage. And he's working a plan, like he's working Chuck with the files to make him improve his life. I think he's offering a, a pathway for Chuck. And now he does it with Kim, too. That's what I thought with this scene with The Office. He offers her sort of a way, like, get out of this rut you're in with HHM and come work here with me. And might I say, okay, I get it, because I know HHM is, like, successful and everything, but she's a doof for not taking this job with Jimmy. And and if we ever wondered what the status was that, you know, between the two of them, we now know for sure Jimmy is head over heels in love with this girl as he's giving her the corner office. Yeah, giving her a pretty like, nice office. Better than his. It was still, it was borderline professional slash romantic, but it got romantic when she saw the kitchen and she was like, wow, stainless. Oh, I don't know. I took see the, see that's so weird because I took that so differently. I took that as oh, this is uncomfortable. Let me get out of here. This is getting a little too personal. Little hearts are involved. Let me escape. Oh, look, there's stainless in the kitchen. I don't even have that at home. Kind of like change the subject. Yeah. Really. <laughs> they were both changing the subject, though, and they even mentioned that on the Insider podcast that Jimmy would give this offer. It was slightly like re- rebuffed by Kim, so he would pull it back too, like to minimize having his heart on on his sleeve. Oh, he was like not. He was like, well, you know, I, I was just kind of kidding. You know, he was. He wasn't. He didn't really try to forcefully talk her into it. He just right. kind of flirted with the idea. She kind of flirted like, well, maybe, but no, I really can't. So he kind of pulled back right away. So okay. Jimmy's, Jimmy's got like a he's, – he's very easily hurt, I think. Yeah, well, especially with her because, you know, he's a tough guy. Like he can – you know, you can see that later um, in his last uh, real big scene with the Kettlemans. He's a tough dude. Like he can – people can say pretty much anything they want to about him. He can take it and he can even talk about himself really objectively and look at the facts for what they are and, you know, everything else. Even the way he talks about his office, you, you can see that in him. But he has a heart. And when his heart's on display for certain people, it's really obvious. And it's like that with her. I also thought that Odenkirk is just really rocking this role. But, you know, it made me think about Cranston, too. So and then and then ultimately it made me think about Gilligan, the right, you know, the creator of all this. So, Jamie, who, who do you think deserves the credit, the Gilligan team or Cranston? I mean, like Cranston got a lot of credit for Breaking Bad, but look what he's look what look what Gilligan's doing for Odenkirk here. He's giving him such great material, 
Right. I mean, did you think ever about Cranston? What a great actor when he was on Malcolm in the Middle or Argo or any of that other stuff. He, you know, he he didn't have the content that he that he was given by Gilligan. Well, I'll tell you this. Um, if I ever noticed, here's what. Okay, my sort of uh, evolution with Breaking Bad came like I. I came to the series probably, I think, three years into it, um, started watching it and binge watched it until I was caught up and then waited, you know, nail biting for the last two seasons and watched those as they occurred. I didn't discover the podcast until the series had finished. And I started listening to the podcast and the insider podcast. What I learned through that is how collaborative good television and good entertainment production is it is highly highly collaborative but here's the thing without vince gilligan's vision and without him at the helm i i seriously doubt that it would be anything near what it is um or maybe it wouldn't even exist because what he did was entirely unique yeah i mean better call Saul. When I heard about it maybe being a show, it was a joke. I thought it was a joke at first. Mm-hmm. And now it's like one of the best shows on television. It's it's Gilligan's writing and assembling this team of other great writers is his direction that makes right. this that makes this and these people like rise up to this super level of of coordinated creativity. It's just it's amazing. Right, right, right. And, you know, with him as showrunner, I think that's what kind of, uh, you know, and then his approach is very different. He's very democratic in how he runs this stuff. He's like a dictator with the sweetest, kindest hand because he lets everyone get in there and do their thing. Like, you know, sound, I was thinking about that um, um, the other day, like after we report, we recorded the long, dark night of the mic, <laughs> um, that episode that we just uh, recorded last week, um, Skip McDonald, I think, did the, did the um, editing on that one. And, you know, he was responsible for a lot of that, the sound stuff that we thought was so innovative and so neat. And a lot of times, because it's Gilligan, because he's at the head of this stuff, he lets these editors and the producers and the directors and everybody come to him with these ideas, and he'll green light them in his genius if he thinks it'll work. And so, I mean, honestly, I think that to that original question you asked, Brian Cranston is brilliant. Nobody can dispute that. In another person's hands, it might not have been that easy to see. But I think that the way that this thing unfolds is just really, um, it's very collaborative. So I think it's the actors. I think it's the directors. I think it's the editors. I think it's the composers, you know, and, and, and it's the writers, well, even in business, they say like the best CEOs are the ones that uh, their their job is to say no to things. So that means that they've assembled such a great team of people and managers that they're unafraid to bring ideas to the CEO. And th- so the CEO's only real job is to say no, 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 yes. You know, finally, that's that's the one. But the people underneath him aren't afraid to try and and create things and try new things and bring new ideas. And I think that's what Gilligan's done. He's assembled this great team of people. I mean, he had, on the Insider Podcast, he had one person, they were talking about a bong that they had to use in Breaking Bad, and that 
and the and the, the Gilligan or one of the writers said, you know, we got to you got to break this in so it looks like it's really old and used. And so the guy who found the bong, like the equipment guy, goes, "I'll I'll put my best man on that, boss." <laughs> so <laughs> even the equipment guy is funny under under Gilligan. You know, it's just it, he must have so much fun working with these people, and they must have much much fun working with each other. Yeah, well, I mean, that's his one thing. You know, Vince Gilligan is like the sweetest guy ever. If you hear him, I mean, he can't even praise anybody that works for him without praising everybody that works for him. He's the sweetest guy. But if there's one thing that that man is absolute about, like he draws the line, that is excellence. He's not going to hire anybody if they're not the best. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so that ended in a commercial, and we come back to Kim Wexler talking to the Kettlemans about the status of their case. And um, Mrs. Kettleman's controlling her husband right into jail here, Jamie. She's, uh, she's saying, no, 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 we don't even have any money, and the money that we do have, we deserve. I mean, she's just, she's just stupidly brilliant. Or brilliantly <laughs> stupid. But Wexler's guaranteed, or guaranteed, Wexler's negotiated a deal to get them from 30, him from Craig from 30 years in jail to one and a half years, which is like fantastically good deal for what they're caught doing. She makes it sound like he's a horrible criminal too. Like he left all kinds of evidence and bad criminal trail behind him. Right. And he did. And he did. We remember this from earlier episodes in the season. It just did the worst job of embezzlement. Um, and and Wrote checks to himself. I mean, it's just so bad. It was so bad. And you know, just the way they described it third person, you just see this dude, you know, just doing every possible wrong, incriminating thing, and then expecting to get away with stealing all this money. It's just so bad. But Betsy doesn't like deals. OJ did a deal. Oh, my God. Okay. That was just, it was so funny sitting here watching this woman justify her behavior and just, I mean, completely stonewalling, lying to her actual attorney. It was just, it was, I was sitting there watching and thinking, as long as this week is as tough as it's, as it's shaping up to be, this is wonderful. <laughs> I'm going to sit here and watch this and laugh at these people. Yeah. <laughs> So just like the just like Mike and the other detective wanted that to go away, I think the DA really wants this to go away too, right? It's a public controller stealing money. They want this to go away. Just take the deal, do your time, and it quietly gets you know filed away. Yeah. Um, but no, Betsy, there's no money. Craig's innocent. Uh, murderers and rapists get away every get away with crimes every day. You know. <laughs> She, she uses both sides of the coin like we're not guilty. And even if we are guilty, other people get away with it. Right. Why can't we? <laughs> exactly. Do you think there was ever any intent for Mrs. Kettleman to let Craig take the fall and she gets away with the money? Or do you think it's always been Team Kettleman? No, I think it's Team Kettleman. Because at the, at, at the end when she reacts the way that she does, when she realizes it's over, the jig is up, she's really upset. And it's because he's going to go away. Yeah. So they fire Kim. <laughs> they really fire HHM, I guess, but Kim's the one working on it. So they, you know, they essentially fire Kim and move away from HHM. That's right. Um, we get to see Saul being the bingo master show host, and that's our name game title, I guess. But what did you think of, of, of Saul Jimmy being the bingo master? Oh, I thought it was so appropriate. <laughs> With his sullen assistant. 
she couldn't she wished she would have been anywhere else but at that bingo game so right she i mean that she could not have looked less pleased to be there it's just not possible <laughs> did you notice that the bingo cards were Saul's face or Jimmy's face what no yeah his face is imprinted on the bingo cards for advertising <laughs> oh god <laughs> Well, that's about right. You know, I figured he was out there promoting his, you know, his angle. But with his face on the bingo cards, that's uh, perfect. I'm starting to call him Saul because there's a, I made some notes in here later on where, where I think I'm, I'm going to ask you where you think he starts to become Saul. But I okay. think it's this episode where he starts to really kind of his uh, his his Saul Saul meter starts to tip towards Saul. Okay. Um, but, um, he's still wearing the Matlock suit, which doubles perfectly for a bingo show host. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I think when you, when you and I were talking about it last episode, um, I called it the game show face when he's over there at the old folks' home. He's such an announcer. He's such a presenter when he's over there. Right. Yeah, it's like you know what it's like. It's like he's doing um, you know a, a, a live commercial like the whole time he's there. Yeah, exactly. Everywhere he goes, I mean, he's he's networking, he's marketing. <laughs> yep, that's our guy. Uh, Saul gets a call during the in the midst midst of this great bingo game, and Jimmy gives his McG- Jim, James McGill McGill Esquire um, British answering voice. Right, and it's the Kettleman's rehiring him. Yeah, except he doesn't want him now. <laughs> they want no jail time, perfect innocence, and everything's going to be great. Um, and I thought Julianne Emery is the perfect model of Hollywood makeup because she's like beautiful in real life and she looks so dorky in this show. <laughs> like they can make her look, however they do it, they make her look really kind of dorky. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of um, amazing how um, these uh, the makeup artists manage that stuff because um, you know it's I think we've talked about that kind of stuff before. Like on the Americans, there are certain characters who are absolutely stunningly beautiful in real life, but you see them on the show and they are very average looking or sometimes ugly looking. You know, and it's just like, how do you do that? <laughs> like Stan. Like Stan, are you kidding me? You're gonna start with Stan. You're gonna take Stan over here. Are you kidding? <laughs> Our audience should know that you and I have a, a little, a little bit of a rivalry going. Uh, there's a character on the Americans named Stan, and I love him. I think he's fantastic. And Mike just decides to pick on me about him all the time. Yeah, I'm still waiting for the Saturday Night Live Stan a Stan episode. That they got to do a parody of that somehow. They must. They would. They look, must. It would look like Stan was looking in the mirror to see Stannis. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think you. I think you should go and write that for them. <laughs> anyway, back with the Kettlemans and Jimmy. Betsy Kettleman says, "But you said, you said, and we already paid you." She's really working him to take the case back up. And yeah. Jimmy escapes for a second and goes to the bathroom and calls Kim Wexler and tells her, "I found something you've lost. It's Ned and Maud Flanders." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, of course, the Kettleman's. Kim asked him to send them back the best bet they have for the, the least amount of damage they can incur is by coming back to HHM and Kim. I think Kim really cares about these people. She knows they're doofs. And if they're not careful, they're going to get the 30 years in jail. Um, she doesn't want to lose the client, but she also really cares about these people, I think. 
I don't know. I don't know. I think she's just a, I, I didn't, I didn't get the feeling that she cared so much for them is that she wanted to do a good job. Like she wanted to represent her clients well, you know? Um, and, and if they had only gotten out of her way, she could have. Yeah, that's a good point. She, she cares about her job being performed. Who, who did we, who did we just reference that really cares about doing a great job? It's Gilligan. Yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's bleeding through to, uh, to Kim Wexler, I think. Um, characters. Jimmy goes back and turns them down again now and tells them, go back to Kim Wexler. And I don't know what Betsy says, but Jimmy says, can we parachute down from Cloud Cuckoo for a second? <laughs> <laughs> and she, now she's dumb, but she's not totally dumb. She threatens him with the 30,000. Like, we're in this together, right? Come what may, I gave you 30,000. So she doesn't forget that, which is pretty smart on her part. Yeah, well, she's something else. She is shrewd. She's like, you know, the epitome of the dumb criminal. They can think about just enough that they could get away with, you know, to, to break the law and make sure that they're really, really doing something illegal. But then they end up, you know, putting their foot in it. She's one Yeah, of and to get into more trouble. Uh-huh. Just enough to get into more trouble. Right. So we have another commercial break and go back to HHM. And Jimmy and Howard are picking up the Kettleman stuff. And they reference the sense of the cornfield. And I, I listened to the Insider podcast and got this reference, too. Did you check that out, Jamie, when they talked about being sent out to the cornfield? No, I haven't. I haven't watched the Insider podcast because I didn't want it to color my podcast with you. So, Well, being sent to the cornfield is the Twilight Zone where Billy Mumy was our mommy, Mimi mummy. He was Will Robinson and um, Lost in Space. That's right. I remember that Twilight Zone episode. Where he was the little kid that anything he wished would happen. And so he, whenever he was mad at people, he would like wish they didn't have a mouth or yep. wish they turned into a jack-in-the-box. It was in both the Twilight Zone show and the Twilight Zone movie. Okay, yeah. See, I've forgotten the movie. I remember the movie when it came out. But I've forgotten it um, in recent years. But I did. I do remember... Uh, watching that because Twilight Zone is actually on Netflix now, the whole series, and um, and I rewatched that because that's like the quintessential Twilight Zone episode. That one. So one of the things he would do, in addition to c- turning people into like d- disfigured, mouthless people or Jack in the Boxes, is wish them out to the cornfield. That's Send right. Send them to the cornfield. That's right. So Jimmy wrestles the boxes of files outside and gets to the parking garage and has a cigarette with Kim and talks to her. And finds out that Howard's mad at her for losing the case or losing the client, I guess. And um, Jimmy has to take over this loser case. (laughs) And um, the only chip that they have for any kind of salvation in this is the money. And this is what kind of lights an idea in Jimmy's head, I think. Yeah, well, you know, and Kim called it. She said, you know, that's the only chip they have to play, but they won't play it. And, um, And Jimmy goes back home, and this is the scene where he's thinking, right? Yeah, he's working late at night. I mean, this idea came to Jimmy, right, not to Mike. He didn't just present the problem to Mike and Mike came up with it. I think Jimmy came up with this. Yeah, I think he came up with it because, um, you know, he's sitting there. Did you notice what he did when he pulled that book out? I noticed a lot of weird things about this nighttime office work he was doing in his in his nail salon. But no, what did you notice about the book? 
Okay, so he pulls out that book. It's a law book, and or it's some sort of book, and um, maybe an encyclopedia. But like when he first opens it, it opens to electricity, and then he thumbs over a few more pages, and then it it's at embezzlement, and then he reads this quick thing about embezzlement, and then he gets the idea and goes and gets the shoebox and gets the money. So the electricity was like when the power's out, you can use the die to see the tracking of the money? No, no. I think it was just a real, like, really cool um, Chuck reference? Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, like, happened to be because it was a book with ease and electricity comes before embezzlement. Yeah, E-L-E-M. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I did not notice electricity. I did notice the, the quick reference to embezzlement. Yeah, yeah. I watched it back. I was like, that is cool. <laughs> so what was up? So they 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 kind of show the goldfish, right? The the goldfish are never sleeping. They're working hard, and Jimmy's working hard. But there were a lot of industrial sounds in that office. Um, also in the garage, before he left the garage, we heard a lot of, like, elevator sounds and clanking of mechanical chains moving in the elevator shaft and stuff. And then in his office, too, there was... He kind of looks up at the ceiling before he grabs his money, and we can hear kind of the sounds of the vents and the background industrial type sounds. I don't, I didn't catch what the meaning of that was. Huh. I didn't, I hate to say it, but I didn't hear any of that stuff. So I guess maybe I wasn't, I was more tuned into what he was doing rather than what I was hearing. And now you, now I'm going to start have to, having to really listen. Yeah, I wish I could offer what it meant, but it seemed like they were making that a part of that scene for some reason. Hmm. Well, knowing these guys, yeah, it, it has some sort of significance because they, they don't ever, nothing is by accident with these folks, or very little is. So, um, yeah, so maybe we'll figure it out. So the idea strikes him to get the money down and you put it into play to lure them out to... Uh, to figure out the, where the stash is, um, so he does take Wexler's idea into play that, or into to heart that it's the money that will get, ultimately get them off the hook. Now, now Mike or Jimmy has to weigh the value of his money uh, versus the freedom of and getting out of trouble, right? Because he could keep his money and let them get into trouble, but he's going to sacrifice his money and do the right thing here. Yeah, I, you know. I don't know. This is this is another one of those moments that really reels me in even more deeply into my interest in this series. Saul, we don't we don't know Saul Jimmy. We don't know him very well yet because really we got so much persona um, in Breaking Bad. The real guy, the real man, um, who has these deep emotions and and. Uh, you know, who we can see his motivations a little bit in this series. We don't know him very well. And I am enthralled by the idea, like getting to know him and getting to see like these little things that, that he does and trying to figure out like where all that comes from inside of him is very, very interesting to me because he could have done, he could have made so many different choices like seriously, he could have hung these people out to dry. He could have he could have gone in a totally different direction. Just imagine for a minute, you know, like the kinds of things he could have done. Uh, he could have laundered that money. He could have kept it. 
You know, he could have bought that office building and, you know, leased out and, you know, some offices and paid for it. He could have had instant success. He could have done so many different things, but he put that money back because it was the right thing to do. And then he put air quotes around it, <laughs> doing the right thing. But it, I mean, that to me is a person with real character. Yeah, he's acting like Jimmy, but he's sounding like Saul. Like he's, yeah. you know, the the whole Ned and Maude Flanders and the quick-talking, loud-talking shit at the police department with the with the detectives. <laughs> he's acting like Saul, or he sounds like Saul, but he's acting like Jimmy. I don't think Saul would have ever given that money back. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, see, I don't know. I don't know. I think, um, I think you're right. I think Saul, I think that Saul still had a lot of real sort of, you know, I think you and I talked about this before where he's got kind of like um, his own moral compass. Like he's not really like our objective moral compass, like what we all in the world, you know, mark as being right, wrong is not necessarily what he follows, but he, whatever his own internal Morality is he follows it. I, yeah, and I, I, I really, I don't think he could have gone another way. His transformation but, is really interesting, and you're right. He's not, he's not one or the other. He's kind of a blend of both of them right now. Yeah, he's. It, it's fascinating to watch. It's really, really. I, I, I would, you know, I haven't heard um, the insiders um, who, who, who write for the show. I haven't heard them talk very much about. Uh, character development when it comes down to Jimmy Saul. Um, but I would be really interested to know like how deep those conversations went and how long they took and, you know, kind of where it ended up and what they tried on and tried off. And you know what I mean? Well, I think they know that that's the story. I mean, we're seeing the story unfold in front of our eyes. You know, hopefully yeah. it lasts three or four seasons and we'll get to see the whole thing. But it's really cool now to see him kind of mid-stage Jimmy to Saul. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so here's the question. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think he's going to turn into Saul at some point, like midway through this series or do you think he'll be Saul at the end of the series? I think he becomes most more Saul than Jimmy in this episode. Okay, and so do you think that maybe by the end of the season he'll be Saul? That's tough because there's only three, two or three more episodes. Um, probably. I bet that's kind of the cliffhanger is the Saul. You're really Saul now. and Yeah, I think so. I think this, this first season. Yeah, I think you're right. You know why? Because they called it Better Call Saul. You're brilliant. You're brilliant, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of obvious. Not sometimes call me Saul. <laughs> call me Jimmy for a little while and then start to call me Saul. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> I like seeing Jimmy and Mike work together, though. Mike does this luminol trick with the die on the money, and then he goes and sits back and eats five apples and watches the the kettlemans go to sleep and the baited money tracks tracks down to the whole stash of money pretty cool mike doing this mike undercover super criminal stuff is really really fun to watch with the cool music in the background 
It was so much fun. It was so much fun. I enjoyed that. And it was such a discovery. Like I had no clue that that kind of thing, you know, would ever work. But that's Mike. Remember, we talked about Mike's got a little magic in his pocket. I will say that watching the extended scene of Mike tracking down the money took so long on the rewatch. It took so long to finish. Oh, I I know. The first time it was seemed quick, but. You're exactly right. I, it was the same when he showed up there, and he sprayed that money and he put it in that thing. I thought, oh god, here we go. Now I'm going to have to sit here for 15 minutes and watch him wait. <laughs> Got to eat four more apples. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, people like to hide things under sinks in the Vince Gilligan universe because that's where the money is under the bathroom sink. That's right. Um, Mike gets it, brings it to Jimmy. Mike's a good worker. Doesn't Jimmy thank him for not going off to Belize or somewhere? No, well, not Belize. <laughs> the Bahamas, baby. Mexico, somewhere. Yeah, South- running away with it. Central America. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah. Oh, God. Belize. Oh, you know, it just reminded me. Because we say that it's so ubiquitous now. But um, that was really the Mike. That was the real Mike reference. Like, that's who got sent to Belize. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, tried to spoiler alert. Jimmy has to supplement the money from the Kettleman's with his thirty thousand or what's left of it. Yeah, probably what's left of it plus some of his own from the ATM or something because he he didn't have very much money to start with. Yeah, and um, oh, he was broke. That was I. I got the feeling that that's why he was doing that thing with the parking stickers. Like he didn't have the cash. Yeah, well, three bucks, you know, <laughs> so three tried. bucks cash. <laughs> So now Mike takes this money somehow to the DA's desk. I don't know how that happens. Did you figure that strategy out? Nah, you know it's got to be something kind of under the table thing because he's an old cop. He knows cops. Yeah, so he walks up with $1.6 million and gives it to the DA and the DA doesn't question it. Maybe he gave it to a cop who knows the DA, <laughs> who the DA owes a favor. <laughs> or gave it to Wexler and she gave it to the DA or something. Or something, something. No, I think he I think he circumvented Wexler. I don't know. But it seems like, to me, I under, the way I understood it was kind of like it went through Mike to the DA's office somehow through some intermediary. But Yeah, I, or slipped under some door or went into some storage locker or something. Yeah, something. Um, doesn't really matter, I guess, because the, it does seem like it gets there safely. Mike, again, does not escape to the Caribbean. He takes, he does what he's supposed to do. He's a good worker. Right. So we get another commercial, and Jimmy meets again with the Kettlemans. Um, and he says, go check on the money you didn't take, and pretty much everything's on the table now. <laughs> right. Um, Jimmy, uh, Betsy blames Jimmy. Jimmy blames Betsy, and... Again, she's kind of dumb smart again here by trying to flip Jimmy. Like, we, you know, you took a bribe and then he flips her. But yeah, you gave me a bribe. So it's not just Craig now, it's you as well. You're in trouble. You're on the hook. Um, And Jimmy, this is where I think Jimmy may become Saul pretty quick because he says, I've got nothing to lose. If it's not at this point, Jamie, it's somewhere pretty close to this point. Um, Because even his accent starts fading at the end of this episode. His British accent, his phone accent. Oh, yeah, kind of. You're right. So we have kind of a touching scene here with Craig helping Betsy finally realize the truth that this is the way to go, that I have to kind of take my medicine and go to jail. And um, Jimmy turns the Kettleman's over to HHM in his 
in his brilliant yellow car with the red door <laughs> and um, says goodbye to his nice office. And I noticed while, while he was looking around at the office that final time, they kind of show the horizon. And it seemed like that was almost a, a reference to the horizon, meaning like anything's possible. G- you know, Jimmy can become Saul. He can become Jimmy. He can keep doing what he's doing and try to stay on the straight and narrow. Of course, we know somewhere along the way he becomes Saul. But why do you think, Jimmy, why not stay on track? He's almost made it here. He, he almost made it. It seems like if he kept trying this pathway, he would he would break through eventually. Well, yes, and I think that's why he's so upset. I think that's why he's broken down and kicking the door and crying and everything. He was on the edge of success. Like, he was right there. But the choice came down to Kim and saving Kim and saving her career or saving himself and having a future. And he chose her. Yeah. I don't see them in a romance. I mean, she knows this huge thing he did. She even mouths the words, thank you. She knows clearly what he did. There's no mystery there. So do you think that's going to bring them any closer than they already are? Or is, or is he friend-zoned by, by Kim? I don't know. Because we really we don't know if there was something between them in the past or if there's just this sort of unspoken thing between them that, you know, that is in the present. But one thing that I do know is that love is so much more poignant and so much more useful in fiction if it's unrequited. So I don't think he's going to get to uh, experience the wonders of Kim. Probably in real life, too. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) Oh, you mean like uh, in real life, unrequited love is more poignant? Yeah, it's more... more it certainly lasts longer, it seems like, in most cases. Yeah, that's true. I mean, how many, friends, how many friends do you have that are still your friends from a long time ago versus lovers that you've had? Oh, yeah, I'm friends with all my exes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I'm going to wonder why Jimmy doesn't try. He's got, the, he's got the genes for it, right? Look at Chuck. He's all trying to become unelectrified. And he's uh, during, enduring pain to do it. Why, why doesn't Jimmy have the stick-to-itiveness? He seems to break bad relatively quickly. Well, he breaks good, too, though. I think, I think Jimmy, I think his world is not the right, like, the right fit for Jimmy. Sometimes people exist and, and who just, the world is just not quite right for them. If the rules were just a little bit different, they would fit better, and they probably have more success and more happiness. And I think Jimmy's one of those people. It's just, you know, the facts of his life. He was born, you know, without that super, super good luck. And, um, you know, I mean, look at the dude. He's He's got, like, he's got the per- – he could be, like, with just a little tweak, he could be this amazing, larger-than-life personality that kind of, you know, like floats through everything. He could be one of those Renaissance men who has a talk show and he's an attorney and, you know, he's famous and, you know, he's a fashion icon. He could be one of those guys, like legit, like seriously. But it's just like a quarter inch past where Yeah, but people create that destiny. They're not prevented from it by luck or by some fate. I mean, he could he could create that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that part of that is believing that you can or knowing the right choices to make at the right moment or having the heart 
to make the hard choices. And, you know, like I said, he could have, he could have had everything that he wanted in this moment if he had chosen differently. If he had just gone forward with the Kettlemans and pressed them to do what they were supposed to do, he could have the office, he could have everything without having to steal anything from them or, or, or anything, just representing them as their attorney as they wanted him to do. He could have had what he wanted, but he wanted to save Kim more. Yeah, but he's going to do something next. We don't know what it is yet, but he's going to do something next that turns him into Saul completely. He did the right thing here. He turned the client back over to the best attorney who got the best deal for the client, and Kim likes him for that. He could still get that nice office. He just needs to stick to it a little bit more. He's going to make a bad decision, though, to turn into the guy that launders money and has Russian computer robots doing fake PayPal payments and all the bullshit we saw in Breaking Bad. <laughs> he's going to know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. You know, he's he's going to break bad. He's... He's got the chops to be good, but he's going to break bad. Yeah, I don't know. I, You know, they've talked about it before, um, you know, on the show, uh, you know, and, and talked about how, you know, Jimmy's, he's got what it takes. Like, he's really good. But just the, you know, I don't know if I believe that he breaks bad so much as he's left without choices. That's a kind Yeah, of- he shut down his own avenues of where his career could go probably yeah i I think i think that's kind of the case because i I don't think that he decided to be a bad guy and i don't think he necessarily was a bad. i think he was an amoral guy but i don't think he was a bad guy but you know yeah all right that was it for 107 bingo next week jamie sorry next week (laughs) it's 108 rico and do you think rico's some uh gangbanger or do you think it's the the acronym for RICO? Mm, I don't know. And if I it is the acronym, the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act, what is that RICO crime that he's going to get involved in? That should be really interesting. I did some data analysis back like a few years ago for uh, RICO-related stuff, and uh, it's fascinating. It should make for good storytelling if that's what it is. Oh, yeah? Well, you can share that for sure next time because that's probably, that's probably what it is. All right. It's not Rico, the, the pizza delivery guy. And not Rico Suave either. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so check us out on West Coast Project. This is Better Call Saul. Please keep coming back. Rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, and put down a couple comments if you can. It helps people keep coming back and notice us and tell your friends. And Jamie, how do people find you on Twitter? At Word Girly. And I'm at Scathing Tweets. So until next Wednesday, uh, we'll say goodbye from Better Call Saul. Awesome. Oh, and the Americans. Come back on Friday for the Americans. That's right. We'll be looking for you. All right. See you then. All right. Bye. Bye, Jamie.